historian Ezra Mendelssohn, a late great historian from Hebrew University, put it this way. The Soviet Union was bad for Judaism, but good for Jews. Welcome to the Why You Ideas podcast, where values-based education meets today's challenges and opportunities with your host, Rabbi Dr. Stuart Halpern. Today's guest is Dr. Josh Carlip, the Herbert S. and Naomi Denenberg Associate Professor of Jewish History at Yeshiva University and Associate Director of the Yeshiva University Center for Israel Studies. Probably the best-selling book in the Jewish world last year was Dara Horn's People Love Dead Jews. You, Dr. Carlip, have dedicated your scholarly efforts to studying communities of dead Jews. Why? Thank you, Stu. Um, great question. As I wrote in a, I wrote in a commentary piece recently in, in November 2022, um, I grew up with the ghosts of dead Jews all around me, the ghosts of, of Eastern Europe, of East European Jewry. Almost all the elderly people that I knew growing up in Baltimore in the 1970s and 80s had Yiddish accents. Um, from relatives to the Holocaust survivors who taught me in Bethlehem Day School. Um, and as I look back on it, I realize that, for instance, in second grade, my teacher, Mrs. Nechama Spector, Zichron Ali Vracha, um, had, was born and raised in Rovna and studied in Vilna. Um, and she really conducted the class like a Tarbut day school in Vilna in the 1920s or 1930s. And, uh, you know, so... It was all around me, um, and I wanted to discover what this world was that was just, just in my in our background, in our immediate background. You know, thirty years before, forty years before, that had been destroyed, um, and that propelled me on a journey. Even from the time I was a kid, I used to read Yiddish literature in English translation and dream about the time that I could read it in the original. Um, then I, um, you know, from the base of uh, of, of course, solid Hebrew and, and Jewish, uh, traditional Jewish sources. I studied uh, Yiddish, and uh, I embarked on uh, graduate uh, studies in East European Jewish history. Um, and I had the real benefit of studying with some of the last Yiddish speakers from, from Eastern Europe um, in really at the last minute, in the 1990s, and you know, the early 2000s, when they were in their 80s and, 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 and beyond. You know, and that really propelled me to study, you know, the dead Jews, you know, the dead Jewish communities of Eastern Europe, but they're really not dead. You know, we say, you know, Yaakov Avinu Lomet, right, uh, Jacob, our forefather, uh, didn't die because, uh, you know, his, his presence is still very much felt amongst us. And the legacy of East European Jewry is still very, very much alive today. Um, it's alive in American Jewry, although it's fading here, but it's very alive in, in Israel. And what is a particular focus of yours? Is there a particular uh, community in a particular time period that you're writing about currently? Uh, yeah, thanks. Um, I'm currently uh, researching a book on Soviet rabbinic writing. Um, the book's title is tentatively Rabbis in the Land of Atheism, The Struggle to Save Judaism in the Soviet Union. Not that that has any contemporary resonance whatsoever. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, all the places. Here in February 2022, I was sitting in the National Library of Israel 
um, going through the archive of Rabbi uh, Shimon Yaakov Glicksberg, who was the chief rabbi of Odessa, Ukraine, right, in the Soviet period, uh, from 1917 until 1937, when he succeeded in making Aliyah. Um, and he spent the last 13 years of his life as a rabbi in Tel Aviv. Um, and here I was going through his whole archive. And then a week later, I got back to the States and Putin uh, invaded Ukraine, you know, and, and all these places that I had just been looking at and holding documents in my hand were, were in the news. And so what have you found studying the history with the, the, the earlier iteration of today's crisis uh, among the Russian Jewish community? Well, you know, it's, it's myriad. Of course, the Jews of Ukraine, a um, hundred years ago, you know, were just coming out of, you know, the worst pogroms in the history of Eastern Europe, you know, the pogroms of the Russian uh, Civil War, where between 1918 and 1921, between 100,000 and 200,000 Jews were murdered uh, by Ukrainian nationalist forces, by the White Army, um, by various militias. Um, and so they were, they were recovering, but they were recovering in the Soviet Union, that the Soviet, um, the Soviet uh, government promised them uh, security, promised them, uh, 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 promised them life um, and protection, but in exchange for giving up their religious life, their national life, you know, pretty much... Um, almost all of their Jewish identity, except for a very attenuated um, Soviet Yiddish culture that was, um, as it was called, quote, national in form, international in content, you know, meaning that it had to hew to a Soviet line. But I don't look at that. Uh, there's been a lot of research done on that official Soviet Yiddish culture. I don't look at that in this study. I look at those who resisted it. You know, I look at the rabbis, you know, who were the greatest losers of the um, October Revolution, which is really a misnomer because it was the uh, Bolshevik seizure of power um, in October 1917. Uh, the rabbis, until the Russian Revolution, were, um, they were leaders of the Russian Jewish community. Yes, they were contested, you know, contested by socialist leaders and Zionist leaders and other, other leaders, but they still were um, leaders of these communities. And the overwhelming majority of Russian Jews in 1917 were still very traditional, traditionalist, a.k.a. Orthodox, right? Um, and overnight almost, you know, these rabbis are turned into pariahs. They're turned into enemies of the state, enemies of the revolution, um, parasites, you know, etc. Um, and what I set out to do is uh, to study how they dealt with that, how they dealt with the place of Judaism or its lack of place um, in uh, the new Soviet regime and how they, um, two, uh, it's a two-pronged uh, it's a two-pronged study. Number one is how they try to uh, mobilize their followers to remain loyal to Judaism under very, very difficult circumstances. But number two is how they theologically came to terms with living in a militantly atheistic state that had slated traditional Judaism for, for destruction, even as the same state protected the Jews physically. You know, and it's important to state that the Soviet Union 
in the 20s and 30s, unlike the Soviet Union post-World War II, was not anti-Semitic, if you define anti-Semitic as, you know, discrimination against Jews in terms of jobs and things. Now, because a Jew could, could rise as high as, as uh, they were able to, um, as long as they hewed the party line. Right. But that I mean, that's a major that's a major caveat. But post World War Two, they you know, even that was rolled back. You know, in other words, there was uh, a pushback. But, you know, uh, historian Ezra Mendelssohn, uh, late great historian from Hebrew University, put it this way. The Soviet Union was bad for Judaism, but good for Jews, meaning you know, it was bad for Judaism and all forms of Jewish identity. It was good for individual Jews, in ter- you know, in terms of rising in the professions, rising in governmental positions, etc. Of course, it came at a terrible, at, at a price of, you know, national and religious suicide. And how is that price reflected in the response uh, that you've studied? The letters uh, that the rabbis received and wrote back to about questions of Jewish law. One of the biggest issues was the issue of Jewish marriage and divorce. Under czarist rule, you know, and czarist rule is very, um, you know, on the one hand, the czarist regime was, you know, and increasingly in the last decades of its existence, militantly anti-Semitic. And, you know, um, on the other hand, you know, religious Judaism did have a place, you know, that the um, every religious group called confessional group, you know, the rabbis had a certain, uh, so rabbis, priests had a certain control over um, members of their religion, and marriage and divorce was in the hands of the rabbinate, you know, until 1917. And this, even then there were some issues between state and religion, but it paled in comparison to what came. Um, one of the first laws um, that the Soviet Union passed was separation of religion and state. Um, and it passed a law that everybody had to register civilly to get married with a uh, organization known by its Russian acronym ZAGS. And um, although Chupavik uh, traditional religious uh, marriage, was not officially banned, it was very frowned upon. Um, and if you were a member of the Communist Party, you could be kicked out and turn into a pariah if uh, you were caught getting married in a religious ceremony. So this raised all sorts of questions for the rabbis. And so the question became, a couple got married civilly, but not religiously, right? And then they split. And then the woman uh, comes before the rabbi with another man and wants to get married religiously. And let's say that either this time she decides she wants the ceremony or the man wants the ceremony, the question is, what is her halachic status? Is she a, an ishit ish? Is she a married woman? You know, that um, if someone else marries her, she is, uh, you know, it's adultery. So it's a, gra- you know, it's a grave sin um, or, or not. You know, wh- what is this, uh, what is this uh, civil uh, marriage? You know, is it nothing halachically or is it a marriage? And the reason it might be something is because there is a um, halachic presumption that if a, if, a, if a man and woman live together and have relations together, that um, it's not for the sake of, of, quote, promiscuity, it's for the sake of, of marital life. You know, so when does that presumption reign and when doesn't it? And, you know, so the ra- and, and the rabbis are caught between two principles. 
on the one hand, they don't want to declare these women, um, you know, married and chained forever and not able to, you know, if they can't get a, div a religious divorce to get from their first husband, and they want them to be able to re remarry. On the other hand, they don't want to write off all these Jews who are getting married civilly as sinners, you know, so so they're caught in a, you know, it, it, they're caught in a tightrope. And uh, the conclusion that several of them come to is that it really depends on who the person is. You know, if the person is a an open member of the Communist Party, you can assume that um, they're they wouldn't care about licentiousness. They wouldn't care. You know, they don't want a religious marriage. You know, and then it's nothing. And then she can remarry. If, however, the um, the people, the couple keeps or, you know, one or both of them have kept mitzvot secretly, you know, um, and just didn't get married um, in a religious ceremony out of fear, then the presumption uh, that, you know, they were married, even in the civil ceremony, applies. And the most fascinating part of this is that they turn to a historical analogy, a historical precedent in the halachic literature, and that was to the Anusim, the Muranos of the um, of the Iberian Peninsula from the uh, 15th century and, and 16th century, because there and and they have to go back, you know, 400 years, 500 years. Um, you have a very analogous situation where you have all these Jews who converted to Christianity, some um, under duress, some willingly, um, and then uh, and they got married in the church. Right? They got married, two, two Muranos married each other in the church. And then uh, one of them, you know, uh, let's say the woman, um, manages to get out of Spain, and she shows up in North Africa, and she returns to the Jewish community, and she wants to get married to another person. You know, what was that first marriage? You know, was that, she got married in the church, hmm. right? Was it halakhically a marriage? You know, so they, t they turn to um, responsa written at the end of the 14th century and the beginning of the 15th century by the Spanish uh, halachic decisor, uh, Rabbi Yitzhak Bar Sheshet, uh, known as the Rivash, who dealt exactly with this question. Um, and he ruled the same thing, that if the couple kept Judaism secretly, then the woman had really intended to get married, and the man had intended to get married. If they hadn't, then... Um, then it didn't count, you know. Um, and so um, it's interesting that um, in one of the Rivash, though, gave as a, um, a line in the sand if the woman went to a mikvah or not, right? Mm -hmm. A ritual a, bath. A ritual bath, right? And, and one of the rabbis in, in Russia, rabbi named Rabbi Tzvi Makovsky, um, you know, exhibited, you know, great sensitivity to the current reality in the Soviet Union. He said, um, the, the historical reality was different. He said the Jews in the, the Muranos in, in the Iberian Peninsula still had a Jewish community that, you know, a, a Murano could sneak to a ritual bath. He said there are whole cities in the Soviet Union that don't have one ritual bath, right? And so he said, and many of these Jews um, don't necessarily realize how integral going to a ritual bath is to marital life, but they, but they would want to have a public religious ceremony. So you can't even use that as a, as a guidepost anymore. You know? mm -hmm. So basically he said if the people keep any form of Judaism at all, um, now you know, on the one hand he's making it harder, but on the other hand he's unwilling to write off the majority of Soviet Jews, and he's seeing them as modern-day Muranos, you know, hmm. which is which is fascinating.
Dr. Karlip for showing us that, in fact, learning how to live can be taught by ghosts. We thank you. The Why You Ideas podcast is a production of the Office of the Provost of Yeshiva University and Uri Westridge. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a five-star review if you like what you're listening to. We want to hear from our listeners. Write to us at shalpern at yu.edu. In the meantime, stay deeply rooted and forward-focused.